Hi guys, it's me Sanya and this is the Coffee Banter Podcast. A conversation around the basic questions of existence, creativity and social healing. Although these episodes are free, but a lot of effort goes into creating and publishing them for you. If you want to support the show, or better yet, buy me a coffee, you can do so through a website called patreon.com. You can pay any amount you like per month and cancel anytime, or even just make a one-time donation. Head to patreon.com forward slash coffee banter podcast to make more episodes like these possible. Enjoy the show. When we deny our stories, they define us. But when we own our stories, we get to write a brave new ending. I'm Sanya Zafar, and you are listening to the Coffee Banter Podcast. My guest today is someone who has gone through immense trauma in her early life, but recognized and owned her experiences and worked on herself for 10 years to be where she is today. A domestic abuse and sexual violence survivor who got diagnosed with bipolar 10 years ago and has now bravely stepped up to talk about her own experiences in order to help and empower others. She mentors two online support groups for people living with bipolar and sexual violence survivors. She is also the host of the Vulnerability Rocks podcast that has conversations on topics that are normally not discussed openly. Originally from the UK, she is now living in Dubai with her husband and two cats, Emma Bell. Good morning, Emma. I'm very excited to have you here today. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Thank you. The pleasure is all mine. And congratulations with your pregnancy. <laughs> How far are you now? So I'm nine and a half weeks pregnant at the moment, which I know normally people don't even talk about until they get to 12 weeks, but yeah. um, we've, been go- we've been going through fertility treatment all year. Mm. Um, so I've been quite open about our fertility journey on my social media channels um, yeah. because I just think that it's good to talk about because otherwise it's quite a lonely space to be in for such a yeah. long time. Absolutely. Yeah, and I noticed that you've been very open about, I mean, amongst other subjects that we will talk about in, in the rest of the show, but about the pregnancy and, you know, not just an announcement like it usually is, but what goes behind the scenes and, you know, your struggles. And I just thought that was so brave of documenting your journal and letting everybody know. Well, I mean, in truth, it probably, it helps me more than, I don't don't know if it helps me more than it helps other people. I don't know. I think with having bipolar and living with a mental health condition, one of the lessons that I learned early on was that, if I was open about things, I felt less alone with things and things were easier to handle. Mm. And then it was weird coming back into uh, like an arena in my life, fertility, where you keep everything a secret and you try and pretend you're okay every day when you're not every day. You know, like if I go back to January when I got pregnant and then we had a very early pregnancy loss, having to pretend I was okay Mm. was, was harder than what I was actually going through. Mm. Um, and it made it so much more difficult. So I think what I did is I then thought I can't, I can't do this in secret because it's, it's too much mm. too, I'm adding too much pressure to the pot. So I just thought, you know, I'm going to just tackle it in the same way I've tackled a kind of the mental health aspect of my life and I'm just going to be open about it. And that way I can be authentic. You know, I can turn up to work and, 
people are kind nobody's horrible you know and mm. they'll say you know people recognize you're having a bad day you haven't got to pretend to be something you're not and that's the bit that I think is so exhausting in life is pretense mm. oh wow yeah that's actually true pretense is it's hard work exhausting. <laughs> yeah. it's exhausting on top of an already exhausting situation and I just thought why am I doing it and who am I doing it for because it's not benefiting me and it's not benefiting anyone around me because mm. these people are expecting all this stuff from me that I can't deliver right now because I'm not 100%. So mm. I, let's, just, let's just blow the lid on it. This is where I'm at. And since then, this year, even though it's been hard going through fertility treatments that haven't worked, and obviously this one, this is our fifth round, which has worked, it's been so much easier since I've just been open about it. Mm. Yeah, I understand that. And I think... Um, that's one aspect from your point of view, but it also helps other people who are going through the same thing, I'm sure, um, you know, to see how it, how it is. And, you know, if you've been through it and you feel like you're not alone and I know that it helps a lot, it helps a lot. Mm -hmm. So I just want to start this interview by digging a bit deeper into your past with your consent, of course, mm -hmm. and, and getting course. to know <laughs> Can you tell me where you grew up and how was your childhood like? Yeah, so I grew up in England in a small town um, and my natural father her, and my mother had me and my brother, um, my brother and I are two years apart, and then he and my mother split up when I was about four mm. and he wasn't really a constant in my life and finally was no longer part of my life at all by the age of nine. Right. And then my mum met my stepdad. Um, and he was the constant in my life from about four or five years old. Okay. Um, and, and although he brought a lot of stability to our lives in practical ways, emotionally, it was um, not, not really a very emotionally healthy environment for, for anybody's emotions, really. And right. it was quite a controlling, militant sort of upbringing, which mm. led to a lot of unhappiness in the home which I was told and believed was 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 almost entirely my fault growing up so mm. it led to a lot of dis disharmony and I decided at the age of 11 that as soon as I was old enough I would leave right um and I did I left at the age of 15 and um yeah I left home at 15 and that's kind of where although I was very happy to be out of home, mm. life started to sort of get chaotic and go off the rails really, because I didn't really, I didn't know how to keep myself safe. I didn't know how to keep myself emotionally safe because I'd never been taught those skills as a child. And I didn't know how to keep myself sexually or physically safe either. So I ended up in quite, um, grooming and controlling relationships and dynamics with people where I ended up being sexually assaulted and sexually abused. 15 years only, 15. right? right. And, and when, I left when you home. left home, yeah, so it was with the consent of your mom, she knew you were leaving or it was on your own terms that you just left, you know? I ran away. Okay. Yeah, right. I ran away. So you're 15 um, and, 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 and you, of course, 15 is just a child. You, you know nothing about your your emotional state anyway and then you're on your own 
yeah and I mean I I thought that I was grown up at the time so um you know it's definitely the best thing I did leaving but at Mm. the same time it left me in very vulnerable situations that I wasn't equipped to deal with but I do still believe it was the best thing to do to leave home for my mental and emotional well-being right Mm. I was being brought up in a very um very prejudiced home and I was having a lot of views put on me that I didn't agree with Mm. um in in terms of how I should interact with the wider world and fundamentally it just went against my beliefs morals ethics all of it really um so I just chose to leave and live a life that was truer to myself but in doing so there was benefits to it but the downsides were I wasn't I wasn't I didn't have the skills to keep myself safe so I was quite vulnerable really Mm, absolutely as it would be with any child in that situation but but as a child as well early on you did recognize like you said you know signs that um that you're not okay and you're not comfortable and you're not safe, you're not protected. And didn't realize that at the time. Yeah. yeah. Okay. No, I had no idea about that mm. at the time. I thought I was perfectly fine, perfectly safe, tough, could handle anything that came my way. Um, I had no idea that I didn't know how to keep myself safe. I had no idea at all when I left home, but that was the case, but that is the truth. Right. And that then contributed towards um, some mistreatment of you by by older people, like you said, you know, grooming and, and sexual violence. Um, yeah. And you were alone at that yeah. point, or did you have like a support network, somebody who you could turn to? Well, so here's the thing. So a lot of what I say when I say I didn't know how to keep myself safe these are all things that I've learned in retrospect as a very much older version of myself I now look back and I recognize oh yes that I had Mm. yeah that I didn't know how to keep myself safe that is not what I believed at the time so I went out into the world thinking that I could look after myself and I could to a degree you know I could get a job and I could pay my bills and you know all of that but in terms of being able to recognize when I was in unsafe situations I definitely didn't have those skills so therefore I was quite vulnerable and what happened was when I left home I got disowned by my family because my stepfather made my family disown me which meant they weren't allowed to have any contact with me Mm. and my mum and my brother used to see me in secret on occasion right but what what also happened was my natural father's brother suddenly came back into my life again and Mm. took on this like cool parental cool uncle role in my life Mm. and befriended befriended me and befriended my friends and I kind of looked up to him and thought that this is what a parent or adult should treat me like this is what my relationship should be like with Mm. with someone who is like a a cool parental role in my life and he treated me very nicely he was very funny he made friends with all my friends he would socialize with us Mm. he helped me a lot so um he he helped me a lot when I moved out 
and really befriended me and I really trusted him and he trusted me so this was one of the big things Mm. I was never given given much trust as a child and he gave me a lot of trust he gave me a key to his house he let me he'd been recently split up from his wife and had two children so he'd let me pick up his children from school he'd let me babysit and this was all stuff I'd never been given before so Mm. I felt important and I felt valued and I felt respected and I thought this is how I should be treated and this is what a relationship should be like not what I've experienced and so there was a lot of trust building and I just thought he was amazing I just thought he was the coolest person like and I just was I suppose I saw him as a bit of a parental figure I thought this is what a dad should be like Hmm. um because I'd had my natural father and my stepfather and I hadn't had a successful relationship with either of them so really when my uncle came into the picture I really believed that that's kind of what a dad should be like you know um and what happened was over that period of time, he would, he was, you know, considerably older than me and my friends, but would hang out with us. We were just 16 at the time, 15, 16, 17. Mm. Um, I, I, me being young, didn't see anything weird with that. And um, when I got to 17, so he'd been in my life for about a year and a half by this point, active, you know, in my life daily. Right. Um like there was one night that we all went out, it was like any other night, there was nothing any different. He walked mm. me home like he would do any other night and went inside, made him a cup of tea and I had to work the next day, eight to late, 12 hour shift in the morning. And it was, I don't know, I suppose one o'clock or something like this. And I just said to him, he was still drinking his tea and I'd finished and I said, look, I'm really tired. I'm going to go to bed let yourself out and I'll catch up with you, you know, tomorrow or the next day after I've, you know, got this 12 hour shift out of the way. Yeah. So I went, I went to bed thinking that he would let himself out. And um, the irony of it is, is if he was anybody else, I would have seen him out, but because he was who he was and I had this level of trust, I trusted him to just let himself out Mm. and lock the door behind him. (laughs) Um, So anyway, I don't know exactly how much longer it was later but I woke up I got woken up to him being in my bed with me so rather than him letting himself out he had put himself in my bed and um was touching me in a way he shouldn't be touching me Mm. and it was awful and in that moment I there was no fight or flight I froze because I couldn't, first of all, I couldn't work out if it was a dream. And then secondly, when I realized it was real, I just couldn't believe it was happening because I couldn't believe that this, him, I just couldn't believe it was happening because I just thought this doesn't make sense with what our relationship is to what's happening right now. It's like a, it's like a shock. I'm sure. Yeah. I mean, you you must have not been able to process anything on, and, I know how it no. happens suddenly sometimes in these kind of situations just like a shock and yeah. it's unreal right it didn't feel real but I knew it was real and the result was is I just I just laid there and I was it was all very quiet and I remember saying to him at the time I had a boyfriend that I was seeing on and off and I remember saying to asking him 
where's so-and-so I won't say the person's name but you know where's so-and-so because I thought if I start asking after this other person he'll get Mm. the message so I don't I don't want this and I want him to leave so I kept saying you know where's so-and-so and he just kept saying you don't need him you've got me now you don't need him you've got me now and he said it over and over again really quietly in my ear because he was laying behind me and it was just so quiet so calm so weird and uncomfortable and not dramatic not fighting and screaming it was the complete opposite but it was horrible and anyway in the end he I thought he's not he's not getting the message by me asking for this other person so I said to him you know I I, you just need to leave please leave please leave please leave and I just kept saying that over and over again but still I was frozen dead still couldn't move in the end he did leave when I started to get upset and say you know please leave please leave and he could see I was upset he left Mm. and I heard him put his shoes on and I heard him walk down the corridor and he went out the door and then the next thing I remember it was I must have phoned my mum because the next thing I remember is my mum turning up in my flat and taking me and then the next thing I remember is being in my parents house Mm. and then the police were called and I didn't have any choice in the matter. I was told that, you know, basically that they were phoning the police. I didn't have any choice, even though right. that's not what I wanted. I didn't want that, but, um, cause I was convinced that he would just say when he was confronted, I was convinced he would just say, you know, I'm so sorry. I've made a terrible mistake. And then I could just say, that's fine. We'll just never see each other again. Right. But that wasn't what happened. It was, it was, it was just not that at all. But the point, in all of this really is not really what happened it's the fact that I did a lot of trauma work at the end of last year and I got to the bottom of what part of it was the worst part Mm. and the worst part of it for me was not what happened as such it was more the absolute devastation of what I lost that day I lost this adult who I believed was amazing who trusted me and I trusted them Mm. and who I believed had my safety and my best interests at heart and having to digest the fact that someone you believe will keep you safe and really does care about you in a way that I had put him on sort of a parental pedestal and to discover that that's not the truth, not the case, that this person, has, you feel tricked. And I just feel, I've, you know, I lost, I lost a lot. And it, and it totally changed my life that day. And right. so, so yeah, so it was emotionally the things that I lost in that moment more than anything else that really took me years to work through. And then became the catalyst for my life just going completely off the rails. So after that, because he was a very well-known man in the town, very well-liked, um, and I was a runaway and classed as a troubled child, um, he convinced the whole town that I had just made this up about him to ruin his life. And... I got chased through the town in a car. Someone tried to run me over. I had someone bite a chunk out the back of my arm. My because goodness. these people in this small town 
just looked at me and I was a troubled teenager runaway who had a bag of emotional problems and why would I say something like this about such a well-respected man of the town and mm. it was just that you know and uh, so anyway I ended up leaving that small town and going to a bigger town um, at which point I sort of became more estranged from my social peers and started hanging around with people much much older than me 10 20 30 years older than me and um, got involved with people that were into drugs into you know bad stuff in life mm. um and I got caught up with all of these people and ended up in a really vulnerable situation where I was violently raped when I was 19 and I'm then sorry. went on to, uh it's you know it, it, it was a crazy few years and then I went on to be in a domestic violence relationship for about two just over two years with someone who was 10 years older than me Mm. Um, so it all just, I can see how one thing is a catalyst for another and another. Um, and the further you get away from people, your own age, people in your own social dynamics, the more troubled you get, the less likely you are to be able to, you know, hang around with other 17 year olds cause they're all still at home or, mm. you know, you become less desirable to yeah. hang around with as a friend because you become more troubled and the more troubled you get you hang around with more trouble and it, and that's just was how my life went for a number of years um mm. yeah so that this 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 vicious cycle you know where even if you had wanted at that time you didn't probably even know what was happening um because like you said you you weren't just upset from what happened how it all started with your with your uncle but you were also secretly grieving because that was a death of a relationship the most important that you had held in in a long time um and and that is just so sad you know for 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 a child to think that and i'm sorry i'm i'm just i'm really like i'm trying to process you know it's all too much and it's all too much to like listen and you went through all of that um i'm so sorry for for everything that happened but i'm also very proud of how you can speak about it now um it requires a lot of courage, a lot of strength, and like like we said, a lot of vulnerability to to own your story and and to be able to speak about it. So thank you for doing that. I mean, you know, if anywhere it it reaches someone who is going through a similar experience, because see, I'm from Pakistan, and recently there has been this uproar. Um, there was an incident that happened. It's it's uh, it was. It was the news, um, one of the biggest news. I mean, rape has been happening for, for centuries in, in each country. Mm. And similarly mm. in mine, there has been incidents. Some get um, uh, reported to the police. The police usually are not as effective as it would be in, in most countries, but most of them don't even get reported. And because of the recent incident, what happened was that a mother who was with her two children on the motorway from one city to another, she ran out of petrol. Mm -hmm. So she had parked her car. She had called the motorway police that, listen, this is the trouble. It's the middle of the night. I'm with my two kids and I can't move my car. So she's locked herself up and they promised to send help. You know, they said, we'll send some petrol. And within mm -hmm. a, a matter of few minutes, um, some robbers came, two of them, who knew her exact location, who knew that her car is stuck there, don't know how. Um, so they not only robbed her, but they raped her violently in front of her two kids. This recent oh. thing happened in the country. It, it became such a big discussion because, number one, this was reported, right? And 
-hmm. And I think everybody connected to it because um, because it happened to a middle class family as well. And we tend to more connect and resonate with something that happens to someone like us. Uh, yes, I'm so glad that that conversation started happening. And one of the very um, sad things that we got to see after this whole event was that there was a lot of victim shaming as well, where there was a lot of yeah. support. People were like, and online bullying on on these news, you know, we got to see comments like, oh, why, why was she out at that time? You know, why was she alone mm -hmm. with the kid? Why did she not check the petrol? And even a very senior official of the police who was assigned to overlook the whole case came up with such derogatory comments, you know, he, and it just really moved everyone. And I think for the first time, we are now actually realizing the importance of victim shaming and you know seeing things from the other side of the story because usually it's just an unbelievable story right like you said in your case and mm -hmm. someone doesn't even just go through that horrible experience but they have to deal with everything afterwards as well that's also something that we don't mm -hmm. talk about yeah yeah I mean that was definitely um that was there was definitely lots of elements of that in in uh in what happened with my uncle so here's one example and things are obviously a lot different now it's over 20 years ago but in England you know 20 years ago I was told by a policeman that um because he hadn't raped me and ejaculated inside of me it would be harder to prove and that if he had raped me and ejaculated inside of me it would be easier to prove so as a 17 year old I kind of went away from that thinking so what he's telling me is it would have been better if he'd raped me because it would be easier oh, to prove. Mm. You see what I mean? Like he, he yeah. didn't say that. Wasn't what he's saying, but the just the the way things are handled now, I'm sure, are much different. But mm. that was actually said to 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 seventeen year old Emma. You know, well, you know, here's the thing: it's going to be difficult to prove because you know he didn't rape you and he didn't ejaculate inside you. So you know, so it's a bit like that. And I I do remember coming away from that thinking, God, you know. So because it didn't get as bad as it could have been in that moment, it's going to be harder to prove. So I would get more justice if he had raped me. I mean, it was just so backwards to me at the time. Mm. Um, and then what happened was um, my, my parents were the ones that sort of insisted that the police had to be involved. So it went through to police, they, the forensics came and they took out all of my bedding, all of my clothes, they took all of his clothes. And even though they could prove that he was lying in my bed, he denied ever going in my bedroom because they took fibres from his clothes and they found an equal number of fibres from his top and bottom on my bottom sheet, which would indicate he was lying down. Even though they found that evidence, um, because he was such a well-standing character and I wasn't, mm. my character just got dragged through the mud in the courts. And the incident happened when I was 17 and the court case didn't take place till I was 19. So in those two years, I went completely off the rails. So I was hanging around with people that were into drugs and you know, some of them were actually criminally involved in drugs. And mm. so all of this got brought out in the courtroom and I, as a witness, as a witness, you know, my credibility was totally called into question because what sort of person was I and how could they rely on me? Because look at how, you know, dysregulated my life was. And so it was 
it was a really, and of course he was this upstanding man of town who everybody loved. So it was really difficult <laughs> and impossible because you know, 17 year old Emma wasn't showing up that well. I was cha I was chaotic. Um, but that doesn't mean that it didn't happen, you know, but it's, it's very difficult, very difficult. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree with that. And because of these experiences, like you talk about being bipolar as well, and that you did get diagnosed um, some, I think, 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. So you, you believe all of these experiences, they, they shaped and triggered that mental illness, of course? So um, the mental illness, I remember first feeling depressed when I was like 14 or 15 and right. then being put on an, an antidepressant, which sent me sky high. And I remember laying in the middle of the road in front of a bus when I was about 15 or 16. And then I decided these tablets, because I got misdiagnosed with depression. Um, and then I wasn't on any medication at all um, and was undiagnosed for a very long time, which probably did add to some of the chaos in my life. But really it all just sort of started kicking off in my late twenties when it really got triggered off by a few people dying who were close to me, very close together. So one person died, then the next person died, then someone else died. Then my mum had uh, like a stroke and and got admitted into hospital. And that all happened very quickly and a relationship broke down and, um, business was like business was hard there was a lot going on so in a 12 month period there was lots of big things that happened all very close together and I think that triggered triggered me to have a complete breakdown in about 2009 um and that's what led to me getting diagnosed in the end so yeah big stresses in life can trigger a mental health condition that would otherwise have been laying dormant sort of so to speak Um, yeah so that can have that can happen um my life was sort of so chaotic from so early on I suppose it is hard to distinguish what what came first but um uh I know that in my 20s it was definitely triggered by lots of big life events happening in a very close proximity to one another and that was what made me very very unwell and probably an accumulation of all of the events that had taken place up until that point me never having really dealt with them and never really processed them properly um mm. probably all of that all together I think led to me having that complete breakdown in 2009 right and here you are now you're openly talking about all of these things and you know with your podcast as well um, I, I did hear a few episodes uh, I think it's great work vulnerability rocks oh. Um, so you. you're now <laughs> you're now talking about all of these things, and um, first of all, I think that requires a lot of courage and commitment because you see, when every time you speak about it, I know after you go through a trauma, you know, a couple of years down the road, it's not probably the same emotion that you feel every time you speak about it. But even then, um, when you're narrating it to someone, you know, you do have to go back, right? Um, yeah. And also the fact that these are some important conversations that should be happening and they are happening. So I want to talk a bit more about the podcasts. Um, 
what kind of guests um, are coming on the show and, and what do people usually, you know, this is for my listeners, um, what should they hope to yeah. listen? Yeah. So, I mean, the thing that inspired me to do the podcast was there are so many things that go on behind closed doors in people's lives that they struggle with. And I think it all it does is it leads to people feeling incredibly lonely absolutely and when people feel incredibly lonely this, my biggest motivator with this podcast is having been suicidal myself following mm. my breakdown 10 years ago i know how lonely that space is and if i can do something with through the podcast where people that have done enough of their own kind of work so they are safe and they are <laughs> contained in a safe space to be able to share their story without it being de detrimental to them so for example i wouldn't share my story now if i hadn't done the work because mm. it would be too vulnerable so i've been through the process i've done the work and i'm not saying everyone's ever totally healed but i certainly know how to boundary myself and keep myself safe enabled to, to to be able to share my story but also mm. look after myself at the same time so i really believe that if if i can invite other people that have got to that sort of space themselves with their own story and they can share it through a podcast and people can listen and someone else will be able to resonate with that they might come away and think Do you know what I'm not the only person in the world with this problem and I'm not the only person that feels this way and I'm not alone. And that for me is the key factor for a lot of people when they get to a suicidal place is that they get to a point where they believe they've got no other option, that they're totally on their own, they're totally isolated, that there's no other way out. They don't know what to do and you get to a place of hopelessness. So I believe that when we share we start to heal and we also bring hope to others so that's really where the podcast what the podcast is about for me and what I try to achieve with it is there's nothing more powerful than sharing your story and someone else sitting there going I get it me too it's so mm. incredibly powerful for, for healing it, um, is. it helps us step it helps us step out of victim mode into empowered mode and it mm. helps us step out of hope, hopeless into hopeful. And, um, and that's what I, I passionately believe. So yeah, the podcast, that's where it's come from. That's why I did it. Um, if one person listens to it and thinks, yep, I can find some hope and I'm not alone, then that's objective achieved for me. <laughs> and the, the sort of guests that are on there. So I've got guests, um, I've had somebody that dealt with child sex abuse and um, forced marriage and a possible death threat over her life. I've had a lady that got diagnosed with stage four cancer and has now defied all the odds and is now cancer free. Um, I've had Josh who grew up with an alcoholic parent and now is um, normalizing mental health by really sharing his story and helping other adults now of alcoholics who so they're people that grew up in an alcoholic household to understand why 
they might be the way they are, why they might act out the way they are, why they might go to substance and alcohol abuse themselves and that really sort of show them a light and a way of maybe getting out of that themselves. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I've, I've had some great guests on and I've got more great guests lined up. Um, and really, the, the, essence, the essence of it is they very bravely come in and share their vulnerable stories that typically would bring up a lot of shame for people and mm. help other people see there's no shame in it. We're not doing this alone. And there is, there is another way. You're right. I think all of these guests that you've had on the show, they're, they're all connected by this thread of of having no shame in owning their story about being vulnerable yet just being present and being there, right? I think our quests of perfectionism, Emma, the, the judgment, exhaustion as a status symbol, productivity as self-worth, all of these things we train ourselves to be of what other people think about us, we're constantly performing, proving, and, and in all of this, we're shying away from our authentic selves. And we're not denying it to our own self, but to others as well that we're connected to, maybe at work or, or yeah. in our personal relationships. Yeah. Mm. Like, so, how can anybody truly yeah. love us if they don't really see us? Absolutely. You know? Yeah. And mm. it's scary because I think fundamentally at the bottom of everything for most people is if everybody, if any, if the people really saw all of me, maybe they wouldn't love me. But the truth mm. is, when you show all of you, the right people love you. Mm. Yeah, that is deep. But, but it's the truth. <laughs> you yeah, know, I first came true. across... It's scary, yeah. but it's true. <laughs> it is. <laughs> it's not easy. I mean, it's one of those things that we say, yes, um, I want to do this. I want to be in a relationship with all of myself, with all of my scars, my past experiences. But yes, you're right. It's it's. I think it's also like a muscle where we need to practice it. It's not something that one day I will switch my vulnerability switch on, and you know, I'm I'm vulnerable now, and I'm my true, honest, authentic self. I, I think it's something that we learn as we go on. Absolutely, it's definitely something that we practice, but also it's something that is earned. So um, there is no way I would have been able to step into just being really who I am without any without pretending for people unless mm. I had got to a space in my life where I felt safe so without safety doing that is incredibly difficult slash mm. impossible so you really have to start reanalyzing who's in your circle who you allow in your circle what are your boundaries if you don't know what boundaries are learn them and learn them for yourself and learn what works for you and what doesn't and stop betraying yourself by letting people cross over your boundaries or crossing into other people's boundaries you know being bounded is is absolutely key and in doing so you find safety and when you find safety you can start to show up as the real you mm. because it's safe to do so um when you're not safe you have to pretend because you pretend to keep yourself safe do you see so mm. you really it takes a lot of work it takes a lot of mindfulness and it takes a lot of just getting real with yourself and and really you know reassessing every area and every corner of your life to see who am I letting in because if you are not safe you cannot do this you know you need to create safety and in order to do that you need to start having boundaries and clear um you know what works for me and what doesn't work for me and when you start to do that and you start to sift that out 
your circle starts to change a little bit and then you can start to feel safe and then you can start to show up as you. I think these are some really important messages to um, to understand. And I really hope that, you know, there's some younger people who are listening to it as well. <laughs> because yeah. you're right, this is the foundation. This is where it all begins. It's something so simple, but just to be safe, to have that, to have yeah. that trustworthy circle, to make boundaries. Um, these are fundamentals of, um, of, of, of things that you can do for yourself. Um, Except they're not things yeah. that you get taught. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's so true. These, these are not, we get taught maths, we get taught English, we get taught, you know, algebra, we get taught the most ridiculous things at school that don't serve us. They mm. serve us into a, a performing-based job. They don't serve us in terms of keeping ourselves safe, understanding boundaries and being able to show up as our real selves. They teach us to keep pretending to be maybe something we're not. So unfortunately boundaries emotional awareness all of this stuff we don't learn when we're children and it's nobody's fault because we just get taught by our parents who got taught by their parents who got taught by their parents so what do they yeah. know did they go to, did they did they go to emotional wellness school no mm. we go to school we learn maths by someone who studied maths we learn english by someone who studied english so I know that things are getting better now, but generally what I find is emotional awareness um, and emotional intelligence is learned. And it's something that as adults, we have to choose to learn and dig into because it's not something we get gifted as a child in most mm -hmm. cases. Mm -hmm. I agree. And I, I think it starts very young as well. Now, me, me being a parent right now, I have a five-year-old um, mm -hmm. and, you know, uh, children with their typical problems that, everyday life uh mommy uh, i want xyz to be my friend but she wants to be the friend of someone else you know and i have yeah. conversations with her from now on where i try to tell her what empathy is because see things will happen she will experience different things in the school she might not be well liked by the person she wants to be liked from but just to be able to address these things um and there's never really a solution for everything um mm -hmm. you know but just having that conversation, making sure that she's talking to me about them, it, it's, I think it's really important, but it's a real challenge, this parenting, you know? Yeah, no, I mean, I'm not a parent yet. I'm pregnant, but um, I've been doing a lot of learning online. There's um, yeah. a, great account, a great account that I follow called Consent Parenting. And right. She teaches a lot about how to teach your children about consent, mm. how to teach um, different people about different things. Uh, different uh, different topics consent boundaries um, body safety um, yeah. sexuality and all of these things and I think all of these play a key role in mm. how our children grow up and then have the skills to keep themselves safe when they're older mm. physically mm. Sex sexually and emotionally and also teaching them about consent not just with people to them but them to others um, absolutely so so yeah, so I think um, there's a lot, right? It's a minefield. I, I, I don't know firsthand, but I can already see it's a minefield. <laughs> <laughs> well, good luck with that. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but um, it's been so nice to speak to you, Emma. And um, one thing I was a bit concerned about because I know that you're pregnant and you're already not feeling your best. And I didn't want, uh, you know, it's an early morning podcast recording that, you know, I come in and I speak about these heavy topics with you. But then I found out the more I read about you that you're okay to speak about it, owing to the fact that you've had immense 
great support now. Um, and you have worked on yourself to be able to be at this spot where you can actually speak about these things and go make yourself a cup of tea or coffee afterwards. So I'm so thankful. I'm so thankful for this, for you being here and uh, sharing yeah, your story you, with thank us. Thank you for having me. Thank you for having me. Thank you very much. And just before I wrap up the show, um, you know, we can't not talk about vulnerability and not speak about Brene Brown, the queen. <laughs> so yeah. I just like to end the show on, on something that she says. She says, to me, vulnerability is courage. It's about the willingness to show up and to be seen in our lives. And in those moments when we show up, I think those are the most powerful meaning-making moments of our lives, even if they don't go well. They define who mm -hmm. we are. That really strikes me. You know, this is beautiful. Yeah, yeah, for, for sure. I, I mean, I love Brené Brown and all of her stuff. Mm. Um, there's, also, um, there's also another guy called Brendan Burchard who does a lot of uh, talk, talking on boundaries as well. Um, so I think the two, vulnerability and boundaries together, are like the perfect recipe because you can't be vulnerable unless you've got your boundaries in place because you need the boundaries in place to be safe so for me they they all they all play a really important part they sure does um if anybody is listening to this right now and want to check out emma's work i will be including uh, the account details for her podcast show in the show notes uh, below and also her instagram where she's often talking about um some really important topics that can keep you grounded Thank you very much for listening and thank you for being with us, Emma. Thank you.